and welcome to 1% Wiser with me, Jamie Green. On this podcast, I'm going to be exploring ideas around optimal thinking, living intentionally, and finding meaning. I've got a great first episode lined up with the Reverend Dr. Richard Fraser. Richard's a minister of the Church of Scotland. He's the founder of the Grass Market Community Project. And most relevant for this conversation, he's also the author of a new book, Travels with a Stick. His account of his time as a pilgrim on the Camino to Santiago in northern Spain. In this great conversation, we're going to be diving into pilgrimage, the impact it had on Richard's life, and how we can all incorporate ideas of pilgrimage into our own lives. So let's get started. Richard, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Great to be here, Jamie. So I want to start really um, at the beginning. What is a pilgrimage and why should someone consider going on one? <laughs> well, it's a very ancient tradition and it's common to a great many faith traditions around the world, not just Christianity, but as many people know, Islam, Buddhism, uh, Taoism. And I think probably that's because one of the common themes of most uh, faith traditions is that uh, Faith is, is sometimes seen as a journey within Christianity, for example. The early church was known as the people of the way. And the idea of the journey is the idea that as you go through life, as you go on a journey through life, you learn more things, you discover more things, you're surprised by more stuff, you, you, your insight deepens. And it deepens as you, as, you has, as, you, as you have the experience of life and the experience of the encounters and the stories that you learn as you journey through life. So, so pilgrimage has an ancient, ancient tradition. And within Christianity, I think one of the key places was uh, Jerusalem, where Jesus was executed, where Christianity kind of first arose, where also, you know, Jerusalem is, is an important site, not just for Christians, but also much more importantly for, for the Jewish tradition from which Christianity emerged, and, and also, in fact, for Islam. But, but around the world, in all sorts of places, there were places that became significant for Christians, and they became sites of pilgrimage, so that here in Scotland, for example, St. Andrews. St. Andrews became famous for being the resting place of some of the bones or relics of uh, the Apostle Andrew. And so St. Andrews, up until the Middle Ages, until the Reformation of 1560, was a major pilgrimage destination. And in fact, one of the interesting things that I discovered recently was that the, 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 if anyone's very familiar with the town of St. Andrews in, in Scotland, what's really interesting about it is that there's a street called North Street, which leads you to the cathedral, and a street called South Street, which leads you away from the cathedral. And in the middle, there's a street called Market Street. And the, 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 the street design there was specifically created to channel pilgrims coming in along North Street from, their, from wherever they had started their journey towards St. Andrews and then leading people out because there were so many people doing these pilgrimages in the Middle Ages. And Market Street was where all the street traders that provided not just uh, food and refreshment for pilgrims, but also the, I always think that pilgrimage um, people are the first people to engage in buying tourist tat, little souvenirs that you pick up on the way. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the background to pilgrimage. You talk about personal transformation being a, a core part of pilgrimage. So I was wondering how you 
think that you were personally transformed or affected by your time as a pilgrim on the Camino de Santiago and how that continued to affect you or how that has percolated into the rest of your life? The interesting thing about pilgrimages, and, and I've done numerous over the years, not just that route to Santiago de Compostela, but also other pilgrimages that I've done in Scotland and, and other places over the years. And one of the things that people often say, and I certainly said this, you know, was I'm off to do a pilgrimage. But I'd read somewhere years ago that, that the pilgrimage does you. And I was curious by that phrase. But then I realized on this seven-week walk that I did to Santiago, I, I began to understand what that meant. And, and that is that so often what we do is we set out with the intention of doing something. And, and it's a very human thing to want to, for example, to, to, to be in control and be in charge and, and to say, this is my plan to do my thing. But, but what you can't really plan for is the, the experience you have along the way, which might be getting blisters on your feet and being crippled by those, meeting a stranger who gives you a different perspective on life that you just had not really encountered before, a, a relationship to landscape that is quite, un, un, quite, un, un, quite innovative and quite uh, radical, because so often when we walk through a landscape, we want to identify the birds or the trees or plants as we go. We want to get to the top of a mountain or whatever. But on a pilgrimage, rather than objectifying nature, I think there's a degree to which as you go on a journey day after day of walking in that kind of habitual way, you, you cease to be you cease to be a, a subject looking at the object of nature and you become a subject within nature. And and the, the writer Robert McFarlane talks about the way in which uh, we often go off to read a landscape, but actually the landscape reads us. And I think the pilgrimage does that to us. It, it teaches us things that we had not anticipated. And, and I think one of the outcomes of that, and one of the things I've learned and taken with me after doing some of these pilgrimages is, is how incredibly enlightening it can be to have an, an open mind and an open heart to the surprise that might come to you from the conversation you have with the most unlikely people. And I often contrast that with the neighbourhood in which I live here in Edinburgh, because I've got neighbours in my street that I hardly know. And yet I've lived in the same house in the same street for years. But there's a sort of reserve that we have about neighbours and about maybe disclosing too much of ourselves. We don't want to, as it were, compromise our privacy or compromise the the knowledge that people have about us. So we can go through our lives scarcely knowing the people that we're living right next door to. Whereas on a pilgrimage, people tend to, you know, you can walk with someone for a couple of hours on a pilgrimage walk and you know their entire life story, but also intimate details about their life in a very short period of time. And there's something about that that's actually gloriously liberating. Why, why do we go through our lives being fearful of each other? fearful of what we might disclose to others when most of the time, most people are actually quite decent folk. And, and actually, you know, if, if you share your, your vulnerability with people, at not, 
most people will not necessarily exploit that, but will actually kind of, you know, sympathize with you. And just, just to sort of add to that, there was a wonderful thing that I read in another book about pilgrimage by this Catholic priest called Jerry Hughes. He'd been a university chaplain and he went on a pilgrimage to Rome many years ago and he wrote a book about it. And one of the things that he talked about was a thing that made him really curious. And that was that he'd arrive in some French village one day and the entire village seemed to be quite hostile and quite sort of grumpy and really not very welcoming. And then the next day he'd walk 20 miles and this village he turned up in for rest for the night was incredibly friendly and open and hospitable. And he said, France can't be like this. It can't be full of unpleasant, unfriendly, hostile villages followed 20 miles later by a really friendly, welcoming one. And then he realized that it was, it was him. If, if he arrived in a place grumpy and footsore and not, not in a good sort of frame of mind with the world, that was the kind of response that he was getting back from people. So there's a degree to which, you know, the lesson of that is you take your hospitality with you. And if, and if you approach life with suspicion or grumpiness, then that's how people will probably treat you. So that, and that was a real lesson, I think, you know, being much more open with people, much more willing to share my vulnerability, much more willing to just anticipate kindness and generosity in the part of people and not feel so threatened or suspicious by neighbours or by the people I encounter. You often appear in the book to, to spend almost as much time uh, talking about these encounters with other people, whether at dinner or whether that is on, on the road, as you do talking about kind of the more uh, religious side of things. And I wonder how you think about this kind of relationship between the the spiritual side of the of the relations with other people versus the more kind of formal religious aspects that that are a part of the pilgrimage as well. Hmm. Yeah, that, it's really interesting that you should frame the question in that way, Jamie, because I think one of the things I've learned over the years of being a minister is and using that churchy language, that theological language. And I've been doing this job now for 35, nearly 40 years, is that there's a, there's a degree to which sometimes we hide behind terminology. We hide behind language. There's, a, there's a, an old kind of Christian heresy called Gnosticism, which is this idea that people have secret knowledge. And I think sometimes we're guilty of that, you know, that we hide, we, we, we give people the impression that we know better by using complex terminology and complex language. But in fact, if you read the gospel and you read the story of Jesus, he was a really basic kind of bloke. He talked in very simple, plain language, the language of the local peasantry, because he was, you know, a carpenter's son from Nazareth. And, and so I, th I think I find myself really wanting in, in all that I do to, to blur any distinction between, between, sort of religious and secular language. And, and one of the interesting things is that in the language of the New Testament, we, the word holy and the word healthy are the same word. And I think that when you read the gospel, you realize that what Jesus was interested in 
was the health of people. He wasn't actually interested in turning people into kind of religious fanatics. And in fact, it was the religious fanatics who were by and large his enemies and who actually put him to death. You know, he, he, had, he, was a, he was a man of the people and his language and his approach was, was, I mean, I'm not saying he was a populist, but in a sense he was. In a sense he was kind of relating to people at the very basic level of human communication. And I think that to me is, is actually really important. Because I think that we can we can so often try to get one over on people by suggesting that we have secret knowledge about the divine or about theology or about God, when in fact you know God is accessible to everyone. Whatever we mean by the word God, which I find is a very complex, difficult. It's the the three-letter word with the deepest ambiguity of any word that we use in the language. Because your idea of God and my idea of God are completely different things, probably. You talk uh, as well about slowing down and the challenge that you've had in, in following that advice to yourself in the past. I wonder, to me, it seems like pilgrimage is almost the, the perfect antidote to some of the, the problems we have in the world today, the rushing around and the speed of our daily lives. I was wondering, how do you think we can incorporate ideas of pilgrimage more into our into our daily lives i think it, it it's an enormous challenge i mean i think i i think one of the insights about pilgrimage is that we have probably only had well we we know we've only had airplanes and motor cars for a relatively short period of time in the relatively short period of time that human beings have had any kind of civilization at all on the planet but i think one of the things that we realizes that if you go back 20, 30,000 years, the whole planet was populated by human beings largely on foot or by boat. And that people moved around at a, at a sort of pace that, that the more that human beings have accelerated that pace, the more damage we have done to our environment and to the way in which the rest of life can thrive. You know, we've lost huge amounts of habitat. We've lost a huge amount of the quality of environment upon which we depend. We've, we've used up so much of the natural capital of the world by, by overliving, which the speed at which we live our lives has probably got something to do with that too. So there's something really important there about, about pace. I mean, I've been a member of the slow food movement for for 20 odd years now, believing that, that there's something really valuable about cultural identity associated with food, about sustainable agriculture, about the way in which we, we see civilization as an agricultural phenomenon, as Wendell Berry put it. And that's such a, a kind of important thing. These people that talk about, oh, let's colonize Mars or something like that, they don't seem to take account of the fact that you need to feed people. Every human being on the planet depends on a, on a viable agricultural system that produces the food that we need in order to survive. And, and basically, sometimes we threaten that by the practices that we, are, that we engage in. So for me, the metaphor of pilgrimage, of going on a journey at three miles an hour at a human pace, being able to absorb the landscape and allow the landscape to, to teach us to connect more meaningfully with the natural world, 
to find ourselves uh, at one with nature rather than seeing it as something to be plundered and exploited and used for our benefit, but to find ourselves just inhabiting it in that sort of more gentle way just seems to me to be a, a really powerful thing and really helpful. And probably uh, one of the reasons I think why I'm so keen to promote pilgrimage is that these are lessons that we need to learn as a human community in order to conserve or to, uh, and to ensure the viability of, of human civilization in the future. There's a really nice quote in your book, uh, which is the story of humanity is that of a restless wanderer, never sure that the world would provide us with enough. And I'm not really sure how to phrase this or, or if it even is a question, but I wonder if there's a sort of difference you, you also mentioned between some people who seem to be on a, on a sort of permanent pilgrimage. I wonder if there's any difference between people on a, a positive pilgrimage to discover something about this personal transformation and maybe something that's less healthy around a pilgrimage to escape something. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on, on that distinction. The thought that I would share is that it goes back to what I said earlier about this idea that whatever your intention is, if you go on a pilgrimage with a kind of open heart and a willingness to be, to be shaped by the experience, then it will, it will do things to you that you don't expect. And I think it was quite interesting because I, I met a whole range of different people, but there was one day in this wonderful town called Logroño in La Rioja in Spain. <laughs> and I met this young couple and they were American and they were really, really nice couple, but they were, gosh, they were lean, fit. One of these really healthy looking couples, probably in their early thirties, make everyone feel really sort of ashamed of how we abuse our bodies, you know? And they said, oh, you know, we, we did the Rocky Mountain Trail last year and we're, we're going to be hiking through the Himalaya and then we're doing something in Thailand. And, and they, were, they were like taking off these physical challenges around the world. And my reflection on that was what wonderful couple they were, lovely sort of lean bodies that they had. But do you just want to tick these things off? Oh, I've done that. I've done that. You know, I've done that. Where's where's the interior journey? And one of the great characters that I've really grown to admire over the years is John Muir, who came from Dunbar in Scotland and as a teenager moved with his family to America, to North America. And he was the founder of the Sierra Club. And I don't know if he used the word pilgrimage as such, but one of the things that he talks about on these massive journeys that he took through places like Arizona and Colorado and what have you, one of, one of the things he talked about was that for him, going out, he said, was really a going in. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that is so important is you can have the intention to go out and do these wonderful journeys. But you have to be prepared to go inward as well. And not everyone is. And I don't think this couple that I met really had clocked that. As charming as they were, they, they were just ticking off these physical challenges. And I felt that, that they were missing something. You talked before about pilgrimage being discouraged. And I was wondering why it was discouraged in the past and, and why that's changing now. 
and what, why you're so keen to promote it? There were various reasons that it was outlawed, in fact, by people like Henry VIII in, in the 16th wow. century. And also the reformers in the, in the Protestant tradition, people like Martin Luther, Jean Calvin, uh, John Knox. St. Andrews was, was a major pilgrimage destination and it ceased to be that in 1560 after the Scottish Reformation. And one of the reasons was that a lot of the reformers were, they, they had this idea that, that there was a sort of idolatry of bones or relics. One of the things, the Scottish Parliament is based in this place called Holyrood, which is down by the Palace of Holyrood House in Edinburgh. And next, right next to the Palace of Holyrood House are the ruins of the Abbey of the Holy Rood. Not many people probably are aware of this, but the Holy Rood is the fragment of the true cross that people believed was brought to Scotland. And there, there were fragments of the true cross all over Europe. Sometimes they were being sold. Probably, in fact, if you collected together all the fragments of the true cross on which Jesus was crucified, you'd have an entire forest. So not only was there a bit of corruption, people selling relics, but they weren't the genuine article, people making money out of pilgrimage. But there was also this idea that people were idolizing these things rather than worshipping the one true God. So for that reason, I think the 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 reformers outlawed pilgrimage. But one of the things I think that people fail to recognize, and, and it's so interesting that if you read the Canterbury Tales, you it's pretty obvious, is that the destination of a pilgrimage, which might be Jerusalem or Santiago or St. Andrews, is actually probably less important than what happens on the journey. And Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer illuminates that perfectly because Canterbury is only mentioned in the title and everything that's of significance happens on the journey. And I think that's true of a lot of uh, these, certainly it's been true of my experience of doing the pilgrimage journeys that I've done, that uh, sometimes the destination, the end, is a bit of a disappointment. Yeah, that rings true in my experience as well. I did a very short section of the Camino for a couple of weeks a few years ago, and I remember meeting some people who were very, very keen on, on getting to the end. And I remember thinking, well, if you, if you just want to get to Santiago, you could you could just take a train. It would be, <laughs> if that, you know, it would be quicker. You could be there this yeah. afternoon. Um, Absolutely. You, t you took, uh, I think, se seven weeks or something off to do this pilgrimage across northern Spain. And obviously not, not everyone can take seven weeks to, to go walking across uh, yeah. northern Spain. So I was wondering what you would recommend or, or any tips or advice you might have for someone who was curious about getting started with pilgrimage, but maybe didn't, didn't have the chance to take quite that amount of time. I think it is a challenge in a way because some people i've come across a lot of people who've decided to do the camino de santiago and they've done it in stages over a number of years they've maybe done a week a year for 10 or 15 years or something like that and that's fine but my strong recommendation to anyone who's thinking about doing this is that that you should try to take as much time as they possibly can and the reason for suggesting that as, as challenging as it is, and I was very fortunate because I had, as a minister of the Church of Scotland, you're entitled to a certain amount of study leave that you can accumulate over, the, over a period of years. So that allowed me to have a kind of sabbatical 
And not everyone obviously gets that. But if you can take just a, a few weeks, one of the really powerful things about going on a long distance walk over a period of time is, is this physical thing that happens to a lot of people, which is that you get into this kind of muscle memory where your body gets into the habit of taking this long walk every day, which might be sort of 20, 30, even some days I was walking 40 kilometers a day. There's a sort of rhythm and a pattern that your body gets into. And I think that's a valuable element. It's not the sole element, but it's one of the elements of the pilgrimage journey that is, is really valuable. So my recommendation to anyone would be to take as much time as you possibly can. But that being said, there are an increasing number of pilgrimage routes in Scotland that are opening up because there is a revival of interest in pilgrimage. And so there are lots of routes that are doable in Scotland in a matter of a few days. I mean, St Cuthbert's Way, for example, you can do in about four or five days, which takes you from Melrose and the Scottish borders to the Holy Isle of Lindisfarne. And that's a wonderful walk through through the borders of Scotland. There's the Fife Pilgrim Way. There's, there's a number of different routes in Scotland that people can do. They're very accessible and very easy to do over a, a shorter period of time. Are you planning any more pilgrimages soon? And if so, uh, where's next on your list? Well, I, I started during lockdown when we when we were sort of released from the the you know the restrictions on travel. I started to do the Fife Pilgrim Way, which uh, takes you from the area near to Queensferry, a, a place. There's a wee village called Curus, and there's also another starting point at, at North Queensferry. And that takes you across to St Andrews, across the middle of Fife. I started doing that uh, a few months ago, but I didn't finish it. So that's number one on my list is to finally to finish that. It just, I, I didn't have enough time and the weather was against me. And so was the lockdown so, because there, there was a real limit on the places that you could stay. So so the Fife Pilgrim Way is one, one of the walks I want to do. I'd also quite like to do the... Whithorn Pilgrimage Way, which is one of the oldest recognised pilgrim routes in Scotland. And that takes you down to a, a village or a small town called Whithorn in Galloway in the southwest of Scotland. And there's a shrine there or a kind of, it's actually an excavation that's been taking place over, over many, many years, actually, of an abbey, one of the earliest Christian settlements in Scotland that dates back predates Columba on Iona, in fact. And the the Whithorn Pilgrimage Way now takes you all the way from Glasgow, right down that way, that west coast through Ayrshire, and then across the Machers of Galloway to Whithorn. And that's one that I'd like to do. And then I've also got another route that I need I need a lot more time for, so I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to do this, which is to walk from France right through the Alps and down to Assisi and possibly even Rome, but certainly France uh, from the Massif Central to Assisi, which would be a lot of fun. It do sound like a lot of fun. Well, hopefully as the world opens up, you'll be able to do those. So we're coming just about to the end, Richard. I just wanted to ask if there's anywhere that people can find out more about your work. Obviously, I will share a link to, to your book or any final words you'd like to, to share with uh, listeners at the moment. Well, there's a couple of things I'd maybe share. One is 
a lot of people have asked me over the years, do you need to be religious in order to do pilgrimage? And the answer to that is absolutely not. One of the first times I spoke after the book was published, this guy in the audience, he said, you know, I'm an atheist. But I went and did the, the Santiago pilgrimage a few years ago, and it changed my life. And I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life trying to work out what went on. I thought that was a really, really intriguing comment from someone because, you know, the, there's so many people. And one of, one of the great sort of conversations that I had that I share in the book was with an Australian woman. And we were talking about faith and religion and the demise of Christianity. And that was the kind of language that I was using, you know, the, the, the crisis of faith in the Western world. And she's just said, there isn't a crisis of faith. She said that so many people are spiritually curious, have a hunger for deeper realities than is offered by consumerism. The problem, she said, is that there's a crisis of faith in the institutions of religion, a, a crisis of trust, uh, a crisis of the language that I talked about before, which seems to be so alienating and sometimes a wee bit secretive. Crisis of, of the church sometimes giving answers to questions that people haven't even begun to ask and isn't really doing enough listening. Sometimes the church is just thinking it's got all the answers without actually listening to what questions are going through people's hearts and minds. So the one thing I'd want to sort of suggest to people is you absolutely don't have to be religious to do this. But what is really worth anticipating is what this experience will do to you and how it will deepen your thinking. And, and as regards practical guides, I would say that, I mean, obviously some people that are listening to this might not be living in Scotland, but there's a, it's a wonderful kind of consortium of people that are interested in reviving pilgrimage in Scotland called the Scottish Pilgrim Roots Forum, which is SPRF. And you can Google Scottish Pilgrim Roots Forum, and that will take you to a website with a whole a vast amount of information about pilgrimage in Scotland. And there's also a, an organisation called the uh, Confraternity of St James, which again, you can Google that, and that gives a huge amount of information about people who've done the Santiago pilgrimage, a very useful resource online. So those are two things that I think would, would be helpful for people if they're thinking about it. Well, I've got a, I've got a, my copy of your book here. I folded over just about every other page. It was a, it was a really great read, and I'll I'll recommend people to get a copy. But Richard, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a great conversation, and really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Jamie. It was a pleasure. Good to see you. <laughs> All right, that is it for this first episode of One Percent Wiser. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. If you want to be notified for future episodes, you can sign up for email updates at 1percentwiser.org. Thanks for listening.